So we're going to be in both Genesis 1 and Revelation 21, so the beginning and the end. So if you want to stick your finger in Revelation, you can do that now. But please stand for the reading of God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now let's turn to Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hope you can join us for lunch next week. That was noon. Food is provided. That's why we need you to RSVP so we can know how much food in the high school room. But we're excited. This is kind of our first step in this Laodicean conversation of how do we respond as a community to that. And I hope that some of you are still joining us on Thursdays in fasting and praying over that. And I'm, I'm hoping that God has been at work and stirring in you as you do that. He certainly has been in me. I've had a lot of good conversations. So just want to keep that conversation front and center in your minds. All right, so um, we are starting a new series today that will take us till Thanksgiving. It'll be eight Sundays. We'll have a couple weeks off, like the picnic and things like that. Uh, <laughs> and at first glance, you're going to be so confused. What on earth are we doing? What are we talking about? But the series is called Embodied. And I want to talk for eight weeks about this this reality that we are embodied beings, that we live in physical bodies and that that is a fundamental part of who we are. And I want to think together, what does it mean to, to be a disciple of Jesus? What does being a disciple of Jesus have to do with the fact that I am an embodied creature? And my experience is that many Christians have a very unclear or very confused understanding of their bodies, or what does my body have to do with a life of discipleship to Jesus? And so um, we're going to talk through that. You might be thinking, how on earth are we going to spend eight weeks 
talking about that. But let me tell you how this is going to break down. So we're going to spend the first two weeks, this week and next week, I want to give you a, a biblical overview, just big picture biblical view of what it means to be embodied creatures, what is the human creature. So we'll give some overview for two weeks. And then I want to talk about a couple of issues that every human being deals with because they have bodies. Uh, we'll look at things like our physical health, fitness, exercise, that whole conversation, which I think is a fascinating conversation, especially where we live. Uh, and then we'll also talk about the, the fact that we are, we have sexed bodies, and we'll talk about just a biblical theology of sexuality in general, because we all have that as well. Uh, and then we'll look at three, I'll call them lightning rod issues in our culture today that are highly politicized, that you'll at first glance go, what does that have to do with bodies? But I promise you it will. We're going to look at climate change, we're going to look at abortion, and we're going to look at transgenderism. Okay, so we're just going for it. It's going to be like a rip-roaring conversation. And yeah, whoa, wow, wow. <laughs> you don't know what I'm going to say yet. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be clapping. Um, but we're going to look at that. Some, some just, we're going to take, I mean, I, I was thinking like, what are the hot topics? I can't think of more, three more hot topics in our world today than those three things. And so I want to look at that, those, and think, how, can we look at it through the view of, of what the biblical view of, this material place in the body is, all right? So I promise this will all make sense if it doesn't yet, or maybe it won't. Um, I mean, you can tell me then that it didn't make sense. But for now, trust me on this. And so today, overview. But I, I want to start with a question, and I want you to be thinking about this throughout this series. What is your own relationship with your body? And you probably won't have a quick answer, but um, how, how do you experience your body? What is the, the, your, how do you experience your relationship with your body? Okay? I want you to just kind of think about that for a second. How would I, like, do I have a metaphor for that? Or how would I think about my own relationship with my body? I'm sure some of us in here, we'd say, I, I don't feel like it's a very close relationship. Like, I, I don't even thought about it. Like, I have a very disconnected relationship with my body, haven't really thought about it. Um, some of you might say, I feel like my body is a gift. When I think of what the relationship, this, is, this has been a gift that God has given me. I've had so much enjoyment in life has come through having a physical body. Uh, some of you might say, man, my body has felt like an enemy when it comes to the spiritual life. Like my body's gotten me into lots of trouble over the years, right? The, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And so I, I sometimes experience my body as this thing that gets me into trouble. Uh, I'm sure some of you, uh, your body feels like a source of weakness or shame or pain. Uh, maybe uh, you are shaped a certain way, you look a certain way, or you grew up and your body was a source of kind of embarrassment or shame, or your body just hurts a lot. And it's a, it's a constant um, companion that reminds you of your weakness and your frailty. And of course, our relationship with our bodies changes over the decades, doesn't it? Uh, I'm 47 now, and uh, my relationship with my body feels very different than it did when I was 27. Uh, and for some of you, you you're, I bet your body is, has felt like a source of sh a strength and power in this world. You might have been really athletic um, or very attractive or just strong, and, and the body has, your body has given you a very clear identity in this world. It's been a source of, of power and even control and ability to influence the world around you. So very interesting relationships we all have. And again, our, our relationship with our bodies is not static. It changes 
over time. So I want you just to be thinking about that throughout this series. And what I want to do today is just give you a high-level overview, as Gina just read, from Genesis to Revelation of the Bible's view of the body. And I, I want to just sum it up right from the front by just saying this. The Bible has a very affirming view of the, Bible, of the body, very affirming, positive view of the, of the body, and a very integrated view of the human person as a body and spirit that is very integrated. Okay? And I think many people have a very low view of the body and a very disintegrated view of the person, that, that our, our sense of ourselves is very disintegrated from our bodies as Christians, and maybe in general. And I want to just, I was thinking about my own growing up and just the culture we grew up in and things that have influenced our thinking about what it means to be an integrated person, what I'm supposed to feel about my body. And at least, I think for myself, people who grew up in the church, there's a couple influences that have affected our view of the body. I'm gonna mention two. One is a very ancient source, and one is a very modern source, okay? So, um, I'm watching your faces right now. I'm asking a lot of you today. I'm just gonna tell you, we're, I'm gonna give you a lot of information, and so you need to bring it all today. So, I'm not seeing sleepers yet. I'm just aware that that could happen. So, um, Two sources I want to just mention that, have, that shaped our culture's view of the body. The first, I would say, is ancient. It is the ancient Greek philosophers. Here's a picture of, of Plato on the left and Aristotle. And I'm thinking of Plato. You can see him. He's pointing up to the heavens. Uh, and Plato and, and Greek philosophy really believed in this, this heavenly, eternal realm of, of ideas, of pure ideas. Actually, what what Plato called forms. And they are these timeless uh, changes, the perfect essence of reality is, exists there. And then you have the, the physical world of matter and bodies that is in some ways inferior to that. It's sort of just a shadowy reflection of those ideal forms. And the body is subject to change, right, and decay over time. And you had some spin-offs of, of these guys, like the early Gnostics, um, that took that even farther, and they were very dualistic in their thinking between matter and spirit. And they, they kind of looked at this physical creation as kind of a fall from like the, the pure essence of like this timeless, uh, bodiless existence, eternal heavenly existence. And so uh, we're kind of like these immortal souls that have gotten trapped in these physical bodies. And, and really the goal of salvation is, is for one day for the soul to escape this fallen, broken body and return to that place of uh, kind of spiritual timelessness. Does that make sense? So I was thinking, and, and that has really infiltrated the church. I was thinking of a metaphor for this. I don't know why this came to my mind because I've never experienced this, but how many of you grew up in a place where there were fireflies? Anybody, any Midwesterners, okay, my, my dad, yes, Drew, yep, right, of course. So I was picturing, I, I've been, I've visited, and I've seen firefighters, but I, this was the image that I was thinking of, of going and catching fireflies in a container. And that's a magical thing to do, I think. But I want you to imagine if, there's, if there were just one firefly in this container, and the firefly represents your soul. And this soul is this luminous thing, this perfect, eternal, always existing, timeless thing. But at some point, it gets caged in this container, right, which is this jar, which is your body. 
And, and the hope is that one day the soul will be released from that broken earthen container and return to this luminous, eternal place in heaven, okay? Does that sound a little bit like maybe what you believed growing up? It's kind of how I, I thought of things. And um, I want you to know it, it's a very disintegrated view of the human person. It basically says, my body is not me. There's a real me that's inside. And in Christianity, we'd call that the soul or the spirit, right? But that is the real me. My body is just a temporary broken container. And so when we talk about like life in Jesus and sanctification and growing, that has to do with that thing inside here. That's the thing that's growing. That, I don't even think that has anything to do with my body. I don't even know what my, what my body has to do with the sanctifying process in Jesus. It's a very disintegrated view and a fairly low view of the body, okay? You with me so far? The other influence that we have as modern Westerners comes from a very different place, but it amounts to a kind of surprisingly similar result, and that, oh, all right, the place of modern, secular, atheistic, evolutionary science. Who's this guy right here? Joe and I call him Chucky e. D. Yep, there's Chucky e. D, uh, the origin of species. Um, but we have, um, beginning with him, evolutionary science, which starts from the opposite place, right? Which is there is no soul. There is no spirit. All there is is matter. All there is is the body. There's just stuff, um, right? There's, there's not some spiritual realm uh, existing, but here's the thing about all this stuff. It appears to be designed, but it's actually not, right? You look out in the world and go, gosh, this universe seems designed and these bodies seem beautifully designed, but what evolution says, or atheistic evolution at least says, it's not designed. It, it is part of an undesigned, unplanned process of, of particles and atoms bumping into each other, random time and chance over millions and billions of years. This has happened in a blind, uh, unpurposeful way. And what this is the result of is, is not some creative, intelligent being doing this. It's just, it's just, it just happened. It could, it could have been anything. And so even though these bodies are all that we have, they're arbitrary, they're random. They, they could have been, they really could have been just about anything. It's, they're not designed, they're accidental. Uh, they have no, what I would call, no teleological purpose. Okay, you still with me? Still pain? Okay, there's, there's no teleological, there's no end goal in mind for these things. There's, there's, they're not created with a purpose or a drive that is what Nancy Piercy calls, it's just matter without meaning, okay? So my body, it's not telling a story that has any purpose. My body's not telling me something about who I am, and it, it, there's no story. It's not telling me how I ought to live. There's no moral ought contained in this body, okay? It's just, it's just matter without meaning. And what that means is, therefore, I can use this body however I want. <laughs> right? there's, no, there's no story behind it. There's no purpose to it. Just, that means I can do with it whatever I want. Here's how one person says, Camille Apaglia, not a Christian, just FYI. Fate, not God, has given us this flesh. So we have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. It's just matter without meaning. It's just my, my I'm not, well, I'm just going to use a word I can't use. But um, 
it doesn't tell me anything. It just, it just happened. And so I can use it however I want. So, for instance, I can hook up with whoever I want. That doesn't matter. I can, I can actually be whatever I want. I can be whatever gender I want. It, it, this body tells me nothing. And so it, it ends up being a very, again, very disintegrated view of the human person that says, I am not my body, okay? There is a real me inside this. Now, we're not going to call this the soul or the spirit, right? There's none of that. But maybe we'd call it my identity or maybe my inner truth, okay? Like my, my th that's the real me. And this body has to conform to the real me that's inside, so starting from two different standpoints, you get to a very similar result, which is a very disintegrated view of the human person and actually a fairly low view of the human body. And what I want to suggest today, my whole point, is to say the Bible gives us a very different view of the, of the body. But many Christians are very unclear. They don't know how to think about this, right? And so we don't know what to do when, when God says, offer your bodies, which is what we looked at last week, as living sacrifices. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body belongs to the Lord, and the Lord belongs to the body. And so what I want to do today is give you a quick, hopefully, biblical overview of how Scripture thinks about matter, this material creation, and our bodies. All right? So sermon one is done. Thus begins sermon number two. It'll only be a half of a sermon, I promise. All right, so you ready for a little quick journey through? Okay, so um, can't cover the whole story. What I want to cover is three big parts of the biblical story. I want to look at creation briefly. Then I want to look at the life of Jesus at the middle of history. And then I want to look at the second coming of Jesus and the end of history. And what we see, this story of matter and bodies that God has created, all right? So let's go to Genesis 1. You may already be there. I'm going to put things up on the slide uh, if you uh, don't have it. But of course, the beginning of the book begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Note that phrase, heavens and the earth, because you're going to see it in Revelation 1. And God saw that it was broken. Good. Just catch it. Yep. God saw that it was good. So, in the beginning, just go on this journey with me. There was nothing. There's no space-time continuum. There is an eternal being, and he is not embodied, okay, God. He is pure spirit. He is immaterial, an intelligence that doesn't have a body. I don't even know how to think about that, how that even works, right? But this spiritual being had a dream in his mind. He dreamed up a world, and it was a very embodied and tangible world, it was a crazy dream, I think. It's a wild dream. But it was his dream. And like an artist in Genesis 1, he goes about bringing about this dream. And really, God is portrayed as the consummate artist in Genesis 1. In the first three days, he paints the background for his characters. And then the next three days, he puts his characters in each of those backgrounds. But it is a, it is a story of, of form and color and order and diversity and matter. It's earthy. It's very embodied and tangible, right? Uh, this is, um, God, I think this, I believe this is God creating the Scottish Highlands, right? And you have this phrase throughout Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. God looked at what he had made, and he saw that it was good. And so we start with a story that says the created 
order. The physical creation is good, it's ordered, it's beautiful, and it is perfectly suited for righteousness and shalom as God intended. It is a, it is a good thing, okay? And um, I just want you to know, Genesis 1 is so different from other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. And if you read the other creation accounts, you see how, how unique this is. Let me give you one. The Babylonian account says that this created order is the result of a cosmic battle between the gods, okay? So you had this god Marduk, uh, whose dad was killed by Tiamat, this female god. And so he wants to avenge Tiamat, and he ends up cutting her in half. It's, it's, it's violent. And her top half is used to make the heavens, and her bottom half is made to use, or used to make the earth, okay? So what we have here is the result of a, of a violent cosmic struggle. Very, very different than the Genesis account that, no, this is an ordered, purposeful, creative product of, a, of an amazing God, and he says it is good. Okay, Genesis 2, then, we go to the creation of humanity, this is narrowing in on the creation of humanity. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay, here's an image of that account. And it is very literally earthy, is it not? And I've said this many times, the Hebrew there reflects that. God takes from the ground which is Adamah, in Hebrew, and he makes the man who is Adam, right? The Adam comes from the Adamah. That, notice there's not some timeless, immortal soul coming down and getting caged. It is a very earthy experience. It is a very integrated experience. God taking the ground, dust, and breathing his spirit, his ruach, into that, and this being is made alive. God takes from the dust and he makes a man who he calls dusty, right? That's the, that's the play on words in, in Hebrew. But notice, it is earthy. It is this earth spirit creature connected with the ground. The creation of Eve is likewise, I think, very almost visceral, isn't it? The Lord God took one of the man's ribs and made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. Such a, such a, such a visceral earthy, embodied description of Eve's creation. And it's these very embodied beings that God declares, you are made in my image, right? Back to Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled, scholarly ink has been spilled over what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And some people focus on our, our intelligence, our rationality. Some focus on um, our relationality, that we can have a relationship with God. Some focus on our morality, that we're moral beings. And, and Scripture doesn't say exactly what that is, but sometimes we forget the most basic meaning of this word at all, which is the embodied nature of this word. And recent scholarship has been pointing out that this word image was most often used in that time to talk about actually idols in temples. So in the ancient world, you have, right, you have temples and there's, there's statues made of the gods. They're, they're, they're idols that represents, represent the gods. So they're a physical representation of some spiritual being. 
And scholars are saying, at the most basic level, that's what this means, that we're made in God's image, that human beings are the physical representation of this non-physical being God. If you want to see what God's like physically, look at a human being. That's the closest thing you have in this world to understanding who God is and what he's like and what his role in this creation is. One person says it this way, the image of God is a declaration that God intended to create human persons to be the physical means through which he would manifest his own divine presence in the world. And that's why he gives us the role he does. I want you to go and rule, right? You are my physical representatives. Go rule with the love and justice uh, and grace that I, I give you, and the intelligence I give you. You are my embodied representatives. Okay, so creation tells us this physical world is not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not corrupt. It is good. God likes it. He wanted it this way. And we are, and our bodies are not just these temporary instruments. They are fundamentally a part of what a human being is, the way God designed it, the way he wanted it to be these integrated bodies and souls together. Okay, how we doing? Raise your hand if you're still with me. That's at least 50%. I'll take that any Sunday. Any Sunday, I'll take 50%, especially after about 25 minutes. All right, let's move to the life of Jesus. And this is, I'll say, this is where our theology of the body really takes off, <laughs> biblically speaking. So three events I want to point out. First, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, right? Incarnate, to become flesh. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus before he became human. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then he drops this bombshell. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, okay? The incarnation. And I imagine if Plato were reading John 1, he'd be with you. The word beginning, yes, I'm with you. The eternal reason, the eternal creator, yes, yes. He made all things. And then he would hear verse 14 and he'd be like, what are you saying? Like, he'd be rolling over in his grave to hear, to hear that. Like, the eternal, that can't become flesh, can't be corrupted. The Gnostics, the first century Gnostics would, would have, they actually believed Jesus only appeared to take on flesh. But we would never corrupt the eternal being with this corrupt embodied existence. But John says, without apology, no. The eternal spiritual being in the person of his son became flesh and took on a body. And I think you cannot have a bigger affirmation of the human body than that. Jesus dignifies the human body by taking it on himself, first as an embryo, a fetus, developing in his mother's womb, becoming a baby, and then growing into adulthood with, with fingers and toes and hands and skin and bones and sinew and hair, the whole thing. And his ministry is lived out in a very embodied way. He walks with people. He lays his hands on people. He eats and drinks with people. He raises his hands in worship. He gets on his knees in prayer. It's a very embodied experience, right? In Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
There is no greater affirmation of the body than for the Son of God to take it on himself for 33 years and beyond, as we'll see. The incarnation. And then I was thinking, well, what about his greatest act of ministry to us? Of course, was a very embodied experience. The crucifixion. And here's how Peter describes it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And I was thinking, our problems are spiritual, right? They're fundamentally spiritual. And yet God's solution was a very physical event. He bore our sins on his body on the tree. It's a very physical event. I'm thinking, couldn't God just like, God's God, couldn't he just forgive us? Couldn't he just, you know, we've got spiritual problems. I forgive you. I pronounce forgiveness over human beings. Couldn't he have done it that way? And God doesn't do it that way. He has a very tangible, uh, dark, earthy, bloody event through which our salvation happens in the body of his son. And of course, Jesus requires a body to die for our sins. So our salvation is purchased through a very embodied event. And then, um, this is your trump card, guys. Okay, if you're having a conversation with a Christian who doesn't think the body's important, here's your trump card. What happens next? Three days later, to be specific. Which is not really three days. You ever notice? It's only like a day and a half. I've never tried to do the math. Jesus dies on a Friday. He's raised on a Sunday morning. Um, the Jewish mind kind of gives him credit for each of those days. I, don't, I think he only deserves credit for a day and a half. But that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Three days later, by Jewish reckoning, Friday counts, Saturday, Sunday, okay? I give him that credit. What happens next? He's raised bodily, okay? This is the trump card. Um, I love this. This is the upper room, the first day Jesus is raised. He shows up to his disciples. While they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And I love this. Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Go ahead, touch me. See, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And they're still not buying it. So he's like, hey, does anybody have something to eat here? Let me, let me eat some. Then he gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate. He's like, look, the fish doesn't drop to the ground. I can absorb it into my body. I have a body. Okay? He is raised bodily. He gets a resurrection body, the only resurrection body that exists so far, okay? It is, it is different, as we know. Sometimes they don't recognize him. He's able to do cool and interesting things with this new body, but there is continuity. It's very much an embodied, a physical body. They can recognize him. His wounds are still there. So there is some discontinuity, but there's continuity. But notice, he is raised bodily. And I just, I'll just say, I didn't get this as a kid. I didn't understand this. I thought... Jesus became a human being for 33 years, and that was sacrifice enough, right? But he came because a human needed to die. So Jesus came down from heaven, became a human, had a human body for 33 years, and then he went back to what he was like before in heaven. And the scriptures, no, that's not what happened. Jesus became human forever. Jesus has a body forever. Jesus will never not 
have a human body. It's a resurrected body. It's different than our bodies, but it is a it is an indestructible body, but he's forever taken on himself human flesh, taken on himself the human situation for all eternity. Take that in. There could not be a stronger affirmation of the body and an integration that the, a human being belongs with their body. Okay? So let's go to the end of the story to Revelation 21. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I'll read parts of it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and now he's creating a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. One of my favorite lines in all Scripture right here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. He, was see, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. In the end, he will create a new heaven and a new earth. The final movement of Scripture is not a movement up to heaven, okay? We're not, this is, I grew up, it's all going to burn, this is all going to go away, and we're going up to heaven for all eternity, right? And I do believe when we die, we do go to heaven. For time, but the final movement of Scripture is actually entirely a movement down. Heaven is coming here. The New Jerusalem, this heavenly city, is coming down here. And my favorite phrase: Look at what it says. Now the dwelling of God is with men, not vice versa. He will live with them. The truth and the hope of Christianity is God is coming here forever. A new, renewed. New transformed earth, all things being made new. Not that he's making all new things, but he's taking all things and he's making them new. But we're going to be on a new earth that is perfectly suited to last for eternity, a place in which righteousness and justice and shalom can dwell as God originally intended. And he goes on to describe a garden city, a place that has the beauty of Eden the rivers and the trees of Eden, but also incorporates human society and, and human culture, and it's the best of both. It's a city. It's not a garden. It's a city, but it's a garden city. But it is very much tangible. It is a place. It is a physical place, and it is perfectly suited for righteousness. God had a dream in the beginning of bodies and matter, and he is not abandoning that dream ever. Amen, Amen right? He is going to renew that and restore that and transform that for all eternity. Heaven is not your final home. The new earth is. And it's very much a physical place. This is, honestly, this is Bible 101. I didn't really get it. I didn't put the pieces together when I was younger. Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What's going to happen to us is going to happen to this earth. It will receive its, its freedom, but it's going to be a renewed earth, trees and, and lakes and rivers and cattle and dogs and cats. I don't know if your dog will be there or not, but animals, I think, and a very embodied experience that, that raises all sorts of questions for us, right? We, and we're not given answers to those questions. I love C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. He has this picture of eternity. And it's like, 
It's not less real and less tangible than here, but the attorney that these spirits go to, to see, it's actually more physical. He's like, every blade of grass had a weightiness that it almost would hurt your feet to step on. Like this, this we're living in the shadowlands, C.S. Lewis said. One day we'll, we will live in the true substance of the place that God designed us for. And we, of course, are going to get resurrection bodies like Jesus. This is what Paul says. Oh, I missed that. There's, there's one artist's rendition of, um, no, it kind of looks like the Death Star, actually, which is not, not helpful, but um, that's, I, you know, something's worth your mind that you see on a screen, like, yeah, that's probably, that's probably. Um, shoot. Um, Philippians 3, we eagerly await a Savior from heaven, right? It's going to come from heaven, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious bodies. Bodies that never break down. Can I hear an amen from some of the folks that have tough bodies, right? That are indestructible, that are perfectly suited for eternal life. And again, that raises all sorts of questions. How old will my body be? Do I sleep? Do I eat? What? I have no idea. Um, but what is clear is that it is a very embodied, eternal experience. Okay, so I am done. That is a, a brief overview. My point being, matter matters to God, right? It was his dream, and he is not abandoning that dream. And your body matters to God. He created you with a body. He will recreate you with a body. Your body is not accidental or tangential or random or peripheral to your life. It is the, the, the story, part of the story that God tells of your life. And, then, and it is an integrated part of what it means for you to be human. It is a gift, ultimately, is, is, is what it is. And of course, in this fallen world, we experience, we don't always experience our, our, our bodies as gifts. I, I get that 100%. But as followers of Jesus, we are to learn what it means when scripture says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And that's what we'll look at next week. What does that actually look like to, to pursue discipleship in our bodies? So I wanna leave you with a um, challenge slash invitation in light of what we've said. I want you to celebrate this week the gift of your body. And here's how I wanna encourage you to do it. I want you to go out and have a thoroughly sensual experience this week. And I'll bet you've never had a pastor tell you that. Uh, I didn't say a sexual experience, though it could be that for some of you. Um, go out and have a thoroughly sensual experience this week. What I mean is have an experience that puts you in the senses, in one of the five senses. Okay, the gift of this body and this material world, go for a walk in a beautiful place. Go down to the tide pools and get inside those little, all the little beauties that God has created. Um, listen to an album from start to finish. Um, have a really good meal at some point with friends. Uh, whatever it is, get into your senses, into this physical world that God has created. I, I once heard this guy say this great line. He said, sometimes you need to lose your mind and come to your senses. And it's a plan word. Sometimes we need to get out of our heads and get present to the beauty of what God has created around us. So you have full permission from 
your pastor, and if you're doing something like that, what are you doing? Like, my pastor said I should have a really great sensual experience this week. So I'll let you be discerning on what that experience is. Experience the gift of being embodied this week. That's my encouragement. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we're on the front end of this series, we just offer ourselves, and even as we'll talk about the body, we offer our minds to you. Uh, we offer our worldview, um, our thoughts about our bodies, about ourselves, and we pray that, you, that your word, your authoritative word would inform us in fresh ways, give us a fresh vision for what it means to be embodied beings and all the implications of that. And I pray this week, I know people have so many complex relationships with their bodies and those can be really painful at times, but I pray that we might actually enjoy the gift of being embodied and enjoy the gift of this, this creation that you've set us in that is so beautiful and that speaks to your power and to your creativity. Uh, so I pray that, that, to, that this on the front end of this, we might enjoy this gift that you've given us in all the right ways, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.